Welcome to the A Million Dreams Podcast. I'm your host, Nolan Nichols. Last episode, we talked with J.P. Kelly about achieving his childhood dream of working in NASCAR. And as a society, we love stories like that. But here's the thing. For many of us, we don't know what our dream is. We don't know what we want our destination to be. And you know what? That's okay. In fact, that's a beautiful thing. Hold that thought. I moved to Washington, D.C. at the very end of 2018, and one of the things I got involved with was this place called the D.C. Dream Center in southeast Washington. The D.C. Dream Center holds countless events for the community on a daily basis. It's a place where hope becomes habit for the surrounding youth and adult community. Through volunteering there, I became really good friends with one of the staff members, Louise Harvey. She was from the United Kingdom, and I remember thinking, how in the world did this person go from England to Southeast Washington, D.C.? What is her story? Fast forward two years later, and Louise is such an incredible friend of mine. And for the next 25 minutes, we're going to hear about what life can look like when you don't know what's up ahead, when you don't know what the destination is, when all you can simply do is focus on the next right thing. Louise, it is so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Nolan. I'm thrilled to be here today and excited to have the opportunity to share. I really value as a friend and so excited for this new podcast venture that you've started. Well, Louise, I have been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. To start off, can you talk about where you grew up, what was your family like, and what was your initial exposure to America? Sure. Well, as listeners can probably tell, I'm not from the States. Um, I grew up in Bath in southwest England. Um, grew up with my parents and my younger brother. I grew up as a teenager watching the American high school movies and they painted this really glamorous world for me where people had cars and they got to choose their own school uniforms. They got to wear what they wanted to school, which is not the case in the UK. And they seemed to go to all these parties. And obviously that's not the case for everyone, but that, that looked really glamorous and exciting to me. And I think it lodged deep in my subconscious that America was a really cool, exciting place to be. That is so fascinating, Louise. But before you came to America, you had a lot of stops in between. And America wasn't even on your radar yet. Shortly after college, you went to work in France and eventually wound your way up in Paris. What was life like for you in those years following college? I really wanted to move to Paris. Um, I got um, an administrative job at the International Chamber of Commerce um, using my French. I worked in French there. We had a great office just across from the Eiffel Tower, um, which was dreamy. At the time, I think that I know that I was stressed about what would this lead to? What would I do next? Um, it was it was administrative work. I was fairly um, fairly bored in the role. But now looking back, I can see that it was a great first rung on the ladder of my resume and just kind of figuring out what did I like to do what was I not so great at um, and kind of going from there so after that um, I got really homesick um, by that point and a lot of my friends were languages graduates and they'd all moved abroad for a couple of years and then they'd all boomeranged back and were in London and I really wanted to be in London it was where I was born um, we went there a couple of times a year growing up and to me it was this big exciting place that I really wanted to live in. So I started looking online for jobs in London 
and I came across an admin role, office manager role for a property startup. Um, and I had a couple of online interviews with them and I accepted the job um, and I left Paris for London. Um, that was that was risky. I had never been to the offices in person. I went from very formal French culture office to very casual British startup. And it was a huge, huge culture shock um, for me. But I just really wanted to live in London and I loved, loved it. The work, my job was very difficult and very stressful, but I loved living in London and I knew I had made the right decision. Um, and so I was there at the property company for a year until I decided I needed better work-life balance. And I moved to a finance company. Um, I was assistant to the COO and I did events organization in Dubai. So I went to Dubai twice with work where our headquarters were. I did recruitment for graduates for our grad scheme and I did HR as well. Um, and that was a really great role because it allowed me to really grow and realize that the aspects of the job I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the recruitment um, and all the people interaction as part of that role. I had three and a half years in London. And during my last year, I started to get itchy feet again. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm really, this role is great, um, but it's not what I want to do long-term. And I want to find that thing that really fits my skill set. And so I remember thinking, I did a lot of research on personality types and Myers-Briggs is my first love. <laughs> I know everyone loves the Enneagram, but Myers-Briggs is forever my first love because it helped me figure out what I am good at. Um, and the kinds of jobs I should do. And so I'm an ENFP and they enjoy enabling people to fulfill their potential. I decided that the nonprofit sector was what I wanted to go for. Um, and then I was applying for nonprofit jobs in London, thought I could get something there. Um, at the same time, in October 2016, I came to visit friends on the East Coast. It was a 10 day trip. And it was amazing. And it just, I felt like I came alive in a different way. I felt so at home, so myself over here. And I got back to London and I was miserable <laughs> for two full weeks. I think I cried every day. And I thought this isn't just post-vacation blues. There is something about that country that I just love. And so I turned to Google and that is how I found the DC Dream Center. <laughs> so I thought to myself, maybe I could find something that would offer a program that would have accommodation and I could come for a year. So I applied um, and I told one person, I told my flatmate, Dan, um, I lived with two guys and a girl at that point. I told him and he was like, you have to go for this. He was like, that sounds amazing. You have to do it. And I think his confidence in it was what helped me go for it. Um, and he said he... He said, if you apply for this and go for it, he said, I will support you financially. Um, and that meant so much to me because he's a freelancer. You know, he doesn't necessarily have a steady income. Um, and I thought, wow, if he would support me financially, maybe other people would too. And maybe, maybe this could work. But I didn't tell anyone else because I thought they might think it was a crazy, crazy idea. I was what, 27 at this point, um, had a great setup in London, a great apartment that I was living in. I had a good job. Um, I could find another job in London if I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector. Had been at my church for three years, lots of friends. 
um, in the city and really loved London as well. But I just kept pushing the door. And so bit by bit, um, the Dream Center offered it to me. That was the first step. The next one was finances. So I had the, it was, I had to support raise. Um, I would have accommodation, which would cut a huge amount that I need to support raise, which was amazing. But I still had to support raise a lot to cover living expenses and flights and the visa and health insurance. And I remember I went in for my annual review with my boss and he said to me, we're going to give you your bonus in full. And I remember thinking that would cover health insurance and the visa and the flights over. Wow. Okay. That's the next piece falling into place. I got the visa. I put the, about the finances to raise it. I was so worried about it. I have a journal entry that I can remember writing and I sat on my bed and I cried and I thought, God, how am I going to get the money for this? This is crazy. Um, I put one post on Facebook about it and wrote three emails and I got all the funds that I needed within one month to cover the whole year. And that just blew me away. That is absolutely incredible. Wow. Let's back up a minute. You were leaving a good salary and a good way of life in London and going across an ocean to America for a volunteer position. And on top of it, you have a really close family. How was it telling your parents about this decision? That conversation did not go so great. Um, yeah, the first conversation I had with them about it resulted in me in tears and they were frustrated that I hadn't told them much about the process of applying. I'd kept it to myself because I really didn't think it was going to go ahead. And they were understandably worried. It was far away. And when I lived in France, I'd been very, very homesick. And France is a lot closer <laughs> to England. You can go home for a weekend. Much harder to do that when you're in America. And so they were not thrilled. Um, but a few weeks later, I went back down to Bath to see them for the weekend. And I said to them, everything's kind of falling into place with this. But unless you guys support me in this or are on board, I'm not going to do it because my relationship with you guys is more important than doing this. And my mom said to me, she said, I know my daughter and I know that she's very determined and I know that you're going to do this. So we support you in this. So Louise, you end up making that jump and moving across the Atlantic Ocean and suddenly America isn't something that you watch on TV, but it's something that you're living every day. What was that transition like? The transition was rough. It was really, really hard. Um, my first week here, I Google flights back to England. I thought I'd made a massive mistake and I thought, wow, everyone's going to laugh at me. Um, for coming back tail between my legs with this idea that didn't work out. Thankfully, a friend uh, had a phone call with me and she encouraged me to wait it out a couple of weeks. And by the end of the first month, I could see a glimmer of hope <laughs> that I could settle in and adjust. I think also just having support raised, I was very blessed, but I didn't have a lot to live off. And so my London life involved brunch every weekend, dinner out multiple nights a week, um, trips to Europe on weekends <laughs> every couple of months. And that was not my life here. <laughs> um, I was taking the bus everywhere and walking as much as I could and having to say no to things because I didn't have the funds to do it. Um, and that was hard. But I'm really, really thankful for the team here. 
Um, I was discipled incredibly well and was able to ask all the questions that I wanted to ask about race in America and what it means to do inner city ministry well. Um, and I'm just so grateful for the patience of my co-workers um, who was so encouraging to me and really helped me settle in um, and make this place home. Getting practical, how did you get settled and make this place feel like home? So I've always taken very much to heart the um, quote, bloom where you're planted. Um, and so in Paris and London, I threw myself into life and it was the same in DC. I thought, well, even if I'm only here for a year, I need community. I joined a small group at NCC my second week here. Um, and women in that group are some of my good friends now, three and a half years on um, here. I reached out to anyone that I met, anyone who I met at church or a volunteer at the Dream Center who I clicked with. I took their number and I said, let's go for a walk, or go for coffee. I knew I needed to have friends here. I think also I asked a friend and I asked her for her advice. And she said, find something that makes you feel like yourself um, in whichever environment you're in. And I've always loved doing photo walks. I just walked around somewhere that was away from Southeast, away from kind of work and what I was thinking about and could just let myself relax and look at the pretty buildings. It was free as well. That was a bonus. I think also for transition, um, just having wise counsel and people cheering you on and people who you can speak with when it's hard. I really valued being able to FaceTime friends in the UK who I could be completely real with, um, even on the first few weeks when I would be crying and saying, I think I've made a mistake. Um, being able to be vulnerable with them was really important. Um, and then having friends here so that I had fun things to do and people to encourage me on here and who could tell me about fun things to do in the city. Um, obviously, as a Christian, my faith was a huge encouragement to me and being able to pray and journal it out and see God's faithfulness at bringing me here um, and see all the ways that he had provided for me to bring me over here was a huge encouragement as well. I think it took about six months um, to really feel settled. I think at three or four, I felt I'd found my feet a lot better and I wasn't taking the wrong bus anymore and ending up completely <laughs> off the beaten path. Um, yeah, because it was around six months that I said to Ernest, I think I'd like to stay a second year. Is that possible? So on that note, let's talk about 2020. Normally, you're able to go back to England twice a year, but then a pandemic hit and international travel isn't possible because your visa would not allow you to get back into America if you left. You are so good about being intentional about friendships. What's your approach to that? Those friendships are really important to me, even though they're not people I see very often. Um, with the pandemic, some of those friends I haven't seen for a couple of years now. I never want to get to the place where I say, oh, I wish I'd kept in touch with them. Um, and I know life circumstances happen and I'm um, not married and I don't have kids. So I have the time to more time to be able to pour into friendships. But my friendships are so important to me. And they made my 20s. They are my support network, um, especially at the moment when I haven't been back for over a year and a half now. I have not seen my family. And so my friends are the ones that have been in person to carry me through and um, support me at the moment. 
2020 was also a very important year for you because you were applying for a visa that would allow you to stay in America. What was that process like? It is a tough process. You really, really have to want it. <laughs> um, it is it is definitely difficult if you are applying to you know, be an engineer or a teacher or a nurse. It's a much simpler process. I applied for the religious worker visa. And so I was incredibly, well, it was a God thing, incredibly lucky that at a second Saturday serve at the Dream Center, someone asked me, they said, Louise, how long do you want to stay here? And I said, oh, you know, as long as I can, if you know anyone who can give me free legal advice so I can apply for the next visa, that would be awesome. I meant it in a joking way, but as, as you can imagine, <laughs> the person turned out to be a lawyer and they said, let me ask my firm. A week later, we signed the paperwork and I became their pro bono client. And so they worked with me for that year to apply for the visa. We submitted, I think it was 16 pounds of paperwork to prove what I was doing here. Um, it was one of the most stressful experiences of my life. Um, getting all the documents in, making sure that we ticked every box and that um, we proved uh, the link um, to the Dream Center um, and religious work to, to prove that we fit the category of the visa. Um, and so we applied in January and I was told that it might take up to a year to get a response. And then obviously COVID came. And so I didn't know how long it was going to be. My parents had been due to visit in May and they canceled their visit. Um, and so they were, I hadn't seen them since July, 2019. Um, I didn't know when I was going to see them again. And yeah, I remember Pastor Joel Smidgall said, don't let the weight, W-A-I-T, become your weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. And I really took that to heart. And I thought about that a lot. And I thought, well, I know I'm going to have to wait. I know it's going to be hard, but it's still a year of my life. And I still want to live it and have fun and make good memories. Every morning at the DC Dream Center, I go to the rooftop and I start my day about 15 to 20 minutes by praying up there. Um, and so I prayed a lot for that visa <laughs> um, over the course of the year and just that God would give me patience, that he would help me to wait well um, and that I could encourage other people who are waiting because everyone is waiting for something. Um, maybe they want to get married. Maybe it's for a new job. Maybe it's um, a relationship to be healed in their family. Everyone is waiting for something and, at different, se and different seasons of our life bring waits for waiting for different things and so I thought well this will be the year that I learned to wait well it was really hard um it was really hard and there were a lot of tears there was a lot of homesickness um I would cry in the shower um because it kind of muffled it um when I missed my family um the year marker came without seeing them in July and that was incredibly difficult it's now 19 months um, but I saw God's provision over and over again. And then in December, um, I remember one evening I was saying to my boyfriend that I thought I'd have to wait till spring or summer to find out. We just didn't know. Everything was delayed. Um, I didn't know when I was going to hear. And the next day I had an email from my lawyer and he said, I think this is it. And I started shaking and I opened the attachment and I read the words approved. And I was like, oh my goodness, 
oh wow oh wow oh wow and I'd always said to myself the first person I will call will be Dan my flatmate in London because he was the first person who inspired me and he was the first person to encourage me to do this and said I believe in you and that you can do this I will support you um, financially and he has done from that very first from September 2017 we're now we're recording this February 2021 he is still financially supporting me um, and so he was the first person I called to tell him I had this it was so fun to text everyone and be like you guys have prayed a long time for this and I finally have the visa I finally have it because for the whole year I hadn't known if I would be asked to leave with a couple of weeks notice to leave pack up my whole life that I'd made here and just go and then I finally had that that confirmation that I'd get to stay. Well, I remember when I received that text message and it was so, so exciting. And it was such a great way to end the year, honestly. But even when you got your visa, your problems have not immediately gone away. You're still not able to travel to England to see your family due to the international embassy being closed. How are you dealing with all of this? Yes, at the moment, I am praying that I will be able to see my family this summer, that will be two years in July since I've seen them in person. Um, and prior to that, the longest I'd ever gone was six months, my first year in America. Um, and before I moved to the States, it was three months maybe. It's really hard, it's really, really hard. And every so often I just have to let myself feel all the emotion of waiting, feel the stress of it and let myself cry it out <laughs> um, and just, yeah, be okay with feeling those emotions. The mantra that I had in 2020 was one more day. And I would say to myself, can I do one more day at the Dream Center of working during a pandemic and one more day without seeing my family? And the answer was always yes. Even on the hardest day, I could do one more day. Um, and that carried me through. I think a week can seem overwhelming. A month is just not possible to think about, but one day I can always do that. Um, and as the verse says, God's mercy is in you every morning and he gives me grace and the encouragement to get through another day um, of waiting. Um, and I, I wouldn't, if you told me before that I wouldn't see my family for at least two years um, and that I'd manage I would have thought you were crazy <laughs> um, or lying to me, but God has sustained me. Um, and I, I know that the reunion will be all the sweeter for the wait. Um, I will be that British person in Heathrow throwing all British reserve behind me as I weep and sob and cling to my parents and get to see them again. Um, I, yeah, I just, I can't wait um, to go back. One thing that I absolutely love about your story is that you didn't know where the road was leading. You didn't know what the end game was. And I'm curious, what's going through your mind as we continue to enter into 2021 and beyond? I do love the United States. Um, I have been obsessed with America since I was a young teenager and I am still obsessed with it now. <laughs> um, I remember I was at a some kind of conference a couple of years ago and we were talking about five-year and 10-year goals and I said that in five or 10 years I it's always going to be the same I want to be living in a place that I love 
I want to be plugged into a church. I want to have good friends and I want to um, have a great relationship with my family and be keeping in touch with friends who don't live in the area that I do. And so that applies to a lot of places. And so at the moment, I know that Washington DC is where I want to call home um, and I want to work at the Dream Center. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm open to seeing um, what God does next. And um, I'm going to be 32 next month. I'm not someone who has always thought I really want to get married and have kids. I'm open to it, but it's not high on my priority list. Um, so I'm just, yeah, looking to see what's going to happen um, in my 30s and where God leads me. Final question, Louise, what would you say to somebody who is thinking about making a big change in their life? So when I left London, I was 28. Um, and in my mind, I thought, well, I'll go for a year. I will just try it out. If it fails and I come back to London tail between my legs, at least I checked, at least I saw, at least I explored the option. Um, there's a podcast, uh, which is now a book as well, called The Next Right Thing with Emily P. Freeman. And that was hugely influential in helping me make the decisions. Um, and her thought is, just do the next right thing. Just do the one next step. Um, and so that was the guiding thing for me with leaving London was what is the one next thing? What is the one question to ask? What is the one piece of paperwork to Google and research? What is the, the one person to talk to? And so that is, that is what I would say to anyone who wants to make a big change in their life is start with the tiniest baby step that you can. Um, I know for me at the moment, figure out my insurance. It's okay. What's the number to Google? <laughs> but yeah, finding the one small thing that you can do. Um, I think talking to someone who's done the thing that you want to do, if it's a cross-country move, if it's um, a new professional um, area, talk to someone who's done those things to see what they think about it so you can gain from their wisdom and insight. Um, but break it down into very, very small steps so it feels doable. Um, and then you can always pivot if you realize, actually, no, this isn't what I want to be doing. And this isn't the right next step. Then you can stop and rethink. Um, but if it is, hopefully the doors will keep opening and the steps will feel so small that they won't be quite as scary. I'm not saying the fear will completely go because there are going to be moments and you think, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? My last two weeks in London, I was hugely anxious and I thought, what am I doing? I'm throwing away my whole life here. Um, thankfully I went ahead with it anyway, but yeah, I think that would be the thing. One small step at a time. Wow. This was incredible. Louise, thank you so much for taking time to share your story and be so open about it for our listeners. I want to talk about a couple things that Louise mentioned, and this was full of a lot of great things. I'm just going to hit on a couple. First thing is the importance of personality tests. Louise mentioned that how, uh, doing a personality test, whether it's the Myers-Briggs test or the Enneagram personality test, any of those personality tests can really do a great job of helping you realize what makes you you. And I used to be very skeptical of personality tests, but what I found is that they are a great tool 
They're not perfect. They're not 100% perfect, but it's a great tool of learning more about yourself. The other thing that Louise mentioned that was incredible was not letting the weight, W-A-I-T, become the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. And waiting is never fun. The waiting game is never a fun game to play. But when you're going through something difficult, can you do it for one day? And that's what she mentioned. You know, looking at a week, looking at a month, looking at a year becomes very overwhelming. But when you're going through a difficult moment, can you take it one day at a time and think, can I do it for one day? Can we take it one day at a time, wake up and say, can we do it for one day? And then start over the next day. Don't look at the full week. Look at the day ahead. And the last thing that really stuck out to me was when she talked about the next right thing. You know, it was interesting to hear her story and how whenever she took the next step, doors seemed to open. When she wanted to go to America and she posted on Facebook, suddenly she was able to support raise enough money. Or when she was wanting to stay in America and was talking about how she needed lawyer help to be able to fill out the visa form, well, the person she was talking to was a lawyer. It was amazing how the next step opened up more doors. But we want all the doors to open all at once. I know for me, that would make it so much easier. It would make life so much easier if all the doors opened at once. But the fact is, is that normally it doesn't work that way. Normally, the next door opens after we take the next step. And it's as we move forward that each door opens. It's not going to happen all at once. But taking the next step doing the next right thing during a crisis, during a difficult moment. That is how we make progress. We can't see a lot of times the entire path. We can't see the entire staircase, but we can see the next step. And it's about taking the next step. So what is the next right thing for you? Be thinking on that. And in the meantime, here's a challenge I want to open up to all of us. We have set up a GoFundMe for Louise for her to be able to fly back to the United Kingdom this summer. Louise does not know that we are doing this, and she will probably hate me for doing this, but one of the exciting things about life is to be able to open doors for other people. It's amazing how lifting other people up is able to lift our own spirits up, and we are going to try to open up a door for Louise. And we set up a GoFundMe where you can do the next right thing in her life and help her get back to her family, hopefully this summer for the first time in two years. And you can give as little as $1. The GoFundMe link is in the description of the podcast. And you can also go to amilliondreams.info and scroll to the bottom of the webpage to find the link. And if you still can't find it, you can email me at nolan at amilliondreams.info. And to conclude this episode, I think it's fitting to finish with one of the songs from Frozen 2 called The Next Right Thing. Here's how the song goes. Just do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It is all that I can to do. The next right thing. Thanks for listening to a Million Dreams podcast.